Recent Advances in Thyroid and Parathyroid Surgery. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Mira Milas. Dr. Milas is the Associate Professor of Surgery at the Endocrine and Metabolism Institute, Cleveland Clinic. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you tell me to begin with just a little bit about the whole field of endocrine surgery and something about the Cleveland Clinic and how it embraces this field? Well, the Cleveland Clinic has a long-standing tradition uh, in endocrine surgery because Dr. George Kreil, who was one of the founders of the Cleveland Clinic, was a thyroid surgeon at the turn of the 20th century. And so the tradition for thyroid and parathyroid surgery has been strongly linked to general surgeons who specialize in treating disorders of certain endocrine organs, which are mostly the thyroids, the parathyroid glands, the pancreatic neuroendocrine problems, and adrenal glands. And we have a wonderful collaborative institute that is composed of endocrinologists who are medical specialists in thyroid and parathyroid diseases and surgeons who together form the Endocrinology and Metabolism Institute at the clinic. And in that context, jointly share in patient care, collaborate in research and education, and uh, are able to bring the latest and best to affect a patient's life. You know, ultrasound is a field that you've published about greatly. It has certainly been on the forefront of medical care for the last 30, 35 years. I'd like to know how surgeons, endocrine surgeons in particular, have incorporated this into their practice. Ultrasound in the last probably five to ten years in this country has really been expanded in daily use for the care of thyroid and parathyroid patients. My partners and I use it daily and and feel that it's an extension of the physical exam. It's almost like a stethoscope, except it's a much bigger machine. And uh, we use it at all points of evaluating a patient from the time they come to the initial visit and even within the operating room. The value that it adds is that the treating physician who has the breadth of other information about the patient who is in front of them is able to do an exam that characterizes the thyroid, can perform biopsies if necessary right there without having the patient have multiple other visits or appointments perhaps to different clinics and is able to come up with a complete assessment that makes the treatment of the patient much more streamlined and ultimately also more successful. For example, in a patient with hyperparathyroidism, how might an ultrasound change the course of that patient and the maybe the surgical approach? So the primary role of the ultrasound in evaluating a patient with hyperparathyroidism would be to identify where in the neck the abnormal parathyroid is located. And the ultrasound is able to define that in an anatomical context, whereas other imaging studies like the Sestamibi scan 
uh, do not necessarily give a direct anatomical relationship of where the parathyroid may be in relation to the thyroid or in the exact corners of the neck. So that is the primary purpose of it. However, uh, what we have found and what other investigators in this field have also found is that 40% of patients who have a parathyroid condition will, on ultrasound examination, have an associated thyroid disorder of some kind. This may be a thyroid nodule. It may be a thyroid cancer. It may be an enlarged thyroid, which is a goiter. And the ability to know that up front allows two problems to be solved at the same time rather than encountering a surprise additional problem during surgery and therefore uh, being able to complete the care of the patient more thoroughly just even with the initial ultrasound evaluation in clinic. I'm an internist, and in my practice, certainly we followed asymptomatic people with hyperparathyroidism. Has the feeling changed because of the incidence of sudden death or lipid abnormalities or undiagnosed diabetes mellitus that comes on later, or even psychiatric symptoms that might be related to transient hypercalcemia in these patients? In other words, should we be more aggressive in the asymptomatic patient? That's a very excellent question, and I think there are really three dimensions in answering it. The first is that upon further questioning of the patient and learning about their past history and their symptoms, we find that the asymptomatic condition is quite rare. If a physician truly delves into more vague symptoms that may be related to mood changes, mental functioning, vague bodily aches and pains of a musculoskeletal nature, usually a patient who has a parathyroid disorder will manifest a change that maybe was not noticeable enough for them to voice by themselves. And so it's it's very easy to think that a person may be asymptomatic when really they have a constellation of vague, subtle problems. And so that automatically brings them to the level of being considered appropriate candidates for parathyroid surgery. The other dimensions in answering that question are that there isn't as effective a treatment for hyperparathyroidism present um, in our armamentarium as is surgery. And therefore, delaying a possible referral to surgery may delay the benefits that do come with correcting the hyperparathyroid condition, which are most significantly related to bone health, but also many of the psychosomatic symptoms, as well as kidney health and prevention of kidney stones. Then, as you mentioned, there are many other aspects of health that have been linked to abnormal parathyroid conditions, including effects on the heart, possibly even effects on diabetic states or lipid metabolism. And none of the investigations to date have really identified characteristics in patients with parathyroid disease that could reliably predict which patients will go on to develop problems and which patients will not have problems. So at least in the surgical community, I think the overall sense has been that if a person is otherwise 
healthy and able to tolerate the surgical procedure, that it is in their best interest to be considered for parathyroid surgery rather than continuing long-term monitoring of what otherwise might have been called asymptomatic hyperparathyroidism. The other thing that you didn't mention, but certainly I was always faced with, was my patients who I was following supposedly closely would not come back for follow-up, and their compliance was always bothering me. What was their calcium now while they were running around town? And uh, this was always... Uh, you know, a real concern of mine and often would lead me to suggest surgery when I might not otherwise have been doing that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable at ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and today our guest is Dr. Mira Milas, and we're discussing new developments in thyroid and parathyroid surgery. You did mention Sestamimi scan, and certainly we have been using it. How do you think that fits in with the workup of a patient, and how about the cost of this test, which is probably greater than ultrasound? Well, the most significant diagnostic workup of a patient with hyperparathyroidism is actually the constellation of their laboratory findings. So both the biochemical profile from blood tests and urine tests. The role of the Sestamibi scan and ultrasound are not to diagnose uh, parathyroid disease. They are predominantly tools for surgeons who will be treating patients with parathyroid disease that aid in localization of an abnormal parathyroid and can therefore direct the conduct of surgery or the choice of a parathyroid operation. Um, and as such, really, those are the, the, the Sestamibi and the ultrasound are the two main available localizing studies. The ultrasound is very uh, easy to perform and available hands-on in a clinic setting and much less expensive. The Sestamibi scan is a much more involved test, um, but the Sestamibi scan is able to examine areas beyond the neck where parathyroids can be located in ectopic regions, and therefore it is complementary to the ultrasound, which by its nature can only examine local regions around the thyroid. People with hyperparathyroidism certainly have associated bone disease and osteoporosis being the most common. Do you feel that we might be missing a lot of osteoporosis in men and that, indeed, our focus should be shifting more to men or at least begin to entertain this idea and what can be done about it? That's a wonderful question, and uh, it has been a, a, a special research focus of ours. Uh, men who have osteoporosis have recently come to uh, have more uh, national attention c comparable to uh, uh, women with osteoporosis whose problems have been a public health issue and there has been awareness of that for many years. About one and a half million men uh, who are age 65 and older have osteoporosis. Uh, and one out of every 2,000 men will also be diagnosed to have uh, hyperparathyroidism. Hyperparathyroidism is one of many possible causes that can lead to osteoporosis or other bone density loss. And for men who have parathyroid disorders, 
uh, screening for underlying or associated uh, bone density loss and screening to diagnose or exclude osteoporosis is very important. I think as a as a group of clinicians, we have not been paying as much attention to this particular group in our population as we should. And uh, what we find is that uh, if you do look uh, with uh, DEXA screenings and bone density screenings at the male population who does have parathyroid disease, uh, their rates of osteoporosis approach that of women. You know, I think that many of us have been influenced mainly in our male population only when they seem to be getting shorter. And this can be just poor posture, but when you think about what we use as clinical indicators in men, it's really pretty scant. Well, I, I certainly appreciate what we've been discussing today. It has given us a, you know, a lot to think about and make us realize the new advances that are taking place in this field. I want to thank Dr. Mira Milas, who's been our guest today. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and we've been discussing these new advances. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.